Welcome to the Happy Home Birth Podcast, your source for positive natural childbirth stories and your community of support, education, and encouragement in all things home birth and motherhood. Well, hey there, happy home birthers, and welcome to episode 84 of the Happy Home Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Fusco, and Today's episode, I know I've said it a million times, but really, this one is just incredible. Today, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Brad Boots-Taylor. Now, I'm sure many of you know exactly who that is. For those of you who don't, get ready to meet the most interesting man in the world. And yes, I am serious. I think he could absolutely take over for the Dosa Keys Most Interesting Man Award. No questions asked. As soon as you hear him tell you his history, you're going to be blown away. Now, one of the amazing accomplishments of Dr. Boots Taylor is his new book, Shared Decision Making, Bring Birth Back into the Hands of Mothers. This book is such a wonderful resource, and I hope that you guys are all going to go over to Amazon, grab it right now, and uh, grab it right now. You know, it makes a wonderful gift for your care provider. So check that out, and let's not waste any time. Let's get on into this interview. Please remember that the opinions of my guests may not necessarily reflect my own and vice versa. And although Dr. Boots Taylor is absolutely the most wonderful OB you could find, continue to see your doctor, your midwife, or if you're like me, your chiropractor. Let's jump in. Dr. Boots Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the Happy Home Birth Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. It is an honor. And as I was telling you before we started recording, I've heard so many wonderful things about you. So many midwives in this area just really appreciate the work that you're doing. So I am excited to have you here. And wouldn't mind, would you just start off by introducing yourself to the listeners? Okay. Uh, Well, one, thank you again. I appreciate the opportunity. Give a brief bio, maybe that'll help address the why at some point. I'm from San Francisco, born, raised there, relocated to New York to finish high school. And then after that, went to the military. I, after high school, I joined the Special Forces, Green Berets. So I was on the A-team for four years. Then getting out of that, went to college and then medical school, also in New York. I did my residency training in obstetrics and gynecology at the St. Luke's Roosevelt Women's uh, Medical Center. And, and I mentioned it in that sequence mainly because during that uh, residency, there was a lot of clinical hands-on OB care. So you got a chance to participate in a lot of different types of birth experiences and birth options. And it was normal to do a lot of what I do now. So that foundation in, during that residency allowed me to kind of do what I do. After that residency, I did a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. And, and I mentioned that because the maternal fetal medicine specialty is one where you try to get the science of obstetrics and appreciate the, the nuances from that perspective. I did some large animal work out there, some vascular studies, looking at effects of things on sheep and things like that. I also did an ultrasound fellowship. But during that fellowship, there was fetal surgery that was being performed as, a, as experimental surgery. And it's actually the, the birthplace of fetal surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. I mentioned that because before you can do surgery on a baby or a fetus in utero, you have to have a, a very 
uh, open and balanced conversation with the mother and her family. And so those, those consultations, those meetings, they included ethicists, sociologists, genetics counselors, pediatricians, maternal fetal medicine. So you spend a lot of time discussing risk and benefits, basically, in an open public forum. And you didn't try to weigh it too heavy or not. So after my fellowship training, I taught residents in New York City at Beth Israel Medical Center, an assistant professor of maternal fetal medicine. So there, I was teaching residents how to do things like vaginal breach and we did a whole bunch of V-backs and, and twins and all that stuff. So it was good to teach it. It was good to be involved in it. And it was considered normal. It wasn't this kind of special thing that needed to get done. And then I spent two years in that position and then relocated to Atlanta. And the rest is kind of history. And I probably will go into it later. But I've been in Atlanta for a while. And uh, I used to just do maternal fetal medicine, by the way, where I did a lot of consultations, speaking to patients about ultrasounds and and things like diabetes and, and all that stuff. I did that for 15 years, sitting behind a desk, not doing any births at all. And wow. that was a critical juncture, mainly because when I started working with midwives and I realized that, they, that moms weren't given the opportunity to have certain types of birth options. So you can imagine as being in a silo, for 15 years pontificating about all these things that I had done and expecting OBs to at least take those recommendations to heart. Uh, 15 years go by, you realize that they were doing less and less of what those birth options look like. So for me, it was revelatory to realize that moms weren't even given choices anymore. So it, it, it was being in that silo of, of doing consultation that allowed me to open my eyes to how many people didn't have options. So that invigorated me to work more <laughs> with midwives. I was like, we got to do something about this. And so the last 10 years now, I've worked closely with, uh, with midwives and moms that have my own practice as well. So we're just providing birth options. We're providing things that were the norm when I was a puppy growing up. So in that headspace, it's easy to do. Uh, we'll probably get to that later on in, in this conversation. So I'm able to work with midwives. I'll tell you how that even formed at some point. But that's the biography in a nutshell. Being exposed to birth options, providing it, learning how to do counseling, learning how to have balanced conversations and not project fear into those conversations. So oh then, gosh, yeah. that's amazing. What, what a wonderful bio. And that kind of leads us to my first question, which is about not only your book that is out, but really your philosophy. And it's about shared decision-making. You know, your book is Shared Decision-Making, Bring Birth Back into the Hands of Mothers. Right. And this, as you kind of noted, I feel like it shouldn't be radical, but it's radical. You know, that's a, <laughs> that's a radical thing. And I would, I would love to hear from you, from your perspective, what is shared decision-making and what does this look like in your practice today? Sure, decision-making. How do I, where do I begin? I'll begin by saying people tend to do it naturally in any other arena except for maternity care. When you go to a restaurant, you're trying to figure out what to order. That's sure decision-making. When you go and pick out furniture for your home or what type of clothes should I buy? You're asking the, the sales attendant, hmm, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And they give you their suggestions. That is actually sure decision-making. But 
in the realm of maternity care, that gets turned around instantly. And so sheer decision-making is to bring balance to that relationship between the mother and the provider. And I'm talking about obstetricians and midwives, by the way. So bringing balance to that relationship when you're talking about various things that occur during the pregnancy and especially during the labor. So shared decision-making is to ensure that it's a uh, two-way street with a conversation. It's not based on a, a, a fearful point of view from the provider or from the mother. And if you're able to, to share in the decision-making about the various things that can occur during pregnancy, by the time you get to the birth, then you have a more trusting relationship and things that occur, which tend to be unforeseen most times, you can trust in making the right decisions based on this mutual trust in your relationship and with your birth team. So it truly is something to carry you throughout the pregnancy versus landing in that space and trying to figure out whether you should do a vaginal breach or not. <laughs> you, have right. to that. you have to have this sense of give and take, mutual trust, mutual respect in order to, to be able to choose certain options. And if that's not there, then you have, I, I call it obstetrical trauma, basically. Oh, wow. And uh, so, so shared decision-making overall is a philosophy and a model of care that I think allows mothers to communicate with their providers and for the provider, to, and I'm talking about midwife and obstetrician, to be able to communicate with their patient or their client. So it's balanced. Mm-hmm. Oh, it makes so much sense. I mean, this idea of forming these relationships before anything happens, before you're in those heightened moments of, okay, what do we do now? Right. Uh, it just, it just makes so much sense. And I can completely understand how all of your time consulting, you know, having these consultations, having these discussions with parents and all of these providers beforehand really brought you a clear picture of how necessary this is. And the ease in which it can be done. When when you are the provider and if you view the mother or client or patient as um, the enemy, for lack of better words, you are going to say things that are going to be able to get the response that you need. So right. if you view the mother as a, as a potential threat, a liability, uh, something you need to orchestrate, manage with your time, get it on a schedule because birth is not the way I want it then you're going to say and, and behave in a certain way as a provider. And so if you are able to have a balanced relationship from the beginning, then when it comes time to make some decisions, at least during birth, you're not going to go to fear and to coercion because you're going to have a respectful relationship. You, you can present with your recommendations and say, I think an induction is necessary at 39 weeks because I think it's safer and these are what the studies show. But if you don't have an induction in 39 weeks, what happens at 40 and 41 and 42 in the way such that the mom can say, you know what? I think I will have an induction at 39 weeks. I appreciate your, your perspective and your, your style of practice, if you will. Not feel that, oh God, oh my God, it's 39 weeks. I better have an induction because the doctor says it's going to happen. So you can choose what that provider is actually presenting to you. Because it's not out of fear, 
it's out of understanding that's what their relationship was like and that's what you you expect them to do. And so it's very nuance driven. Absolutely. And what you're saying, it's just it's beautiful because it's exactly why the midwives model of care, in my opinion, is so wonderful. You know, this idea of establishing relationships and and spending the prenatal time growing that. And it's not some, you know, shock when whoever enters your room is there to just catch your baby. You know, you are truly kind of watering and adding sunlight and just growing a relationship. And that's so beautiful to hear from, you know, not only the midwives model of care, but if that is in the hospital as well, wow, what, what an amazing opportunity for mothers and care providers. It, it makes people better. It makes the relationships better. There's less finger pointing. And, and I'll tell you, there are three components to shared decision-making. And the first is the first one, shared decision-making, sharing the information. It's not like I have a secret and I'm not going to tell you till later. So you're sharing the information as best you can, uh, especially as a provider. The second component is uh, shared responsibility. So now that you're talking about, say, getting a GBS swab at 36 weeks to the who better struck for your audience, a GBS swab at 36 weeks, should I get it? Should I not get it? What's the, what's the implications if it's a positive test? I'm not so sure about antibiotics, but if I don't know if I have GBS, should I treat with antibiotics? So the shared responsibility is to make a choice in that particular example, whether you want to do a GBS culture or not. And you are responsible for the choice that you make. If you don't get the GBS culture and during the course of labor, you realize you might eat antibiotics, then you're responsible to that choice. It's not like, man, I missed the test. I should have gotten it. Oh, my God. No, it's being responsible to the choices that you make. So that's the second component. The third component is the most important part of shared decision-making, actually. It's, it's something I coined guided discovery. So as things occur, you can discover that hmm, maybe I need to make a different choice. Maybe I need to pivot. And if I use that example of the GBS culture, say you didn't get one because you didn't want to worry about being GBS positive and maybe doing home birth and things like that. But then you find yourself, say, with ruptured membranes for an extended period of time and you might be developing a fever or not. You may say to yourself, you know what? I want the antibiotics. I don't have a culture. I know there's a potential risk. I don't have a fever. There's no sign of infection, but I'm now being guided and I'm discovering I need to make different choices. And the guided discovery piece doesn't make you feel embarrassed by changing your position or pivoting. It's actually healthier because now you're in a new situation. You're dealing with new information. When you were 36 weeks pregnant, you, you couldn't think about having ruptured membranes for two days. So why would I need a GBS culture? But now that you're in that situation, ruptured membrane for two days, it'll guide you to make different choices. And those will be healthy choices. It won't be out of embarrassment, out of regret. It'll be, I made a, I made a responsible decision not to get the culture. Now I'm in a situation where I have an option of antibiotics. I'm now going to choose it. So the guided discovery is where I find a lot of my healthier relationships with mothers because you can't anticipate everything. You you can't anticipate every single thing that the birth plan is going to happen. No, you have to have a relationship to say as things occur, you're guided to that and you discover that you have to make certain other choices. And then thereby the process remains healthy. 
not so much whether you have a, a surgical birth or a vaginal delivery, but was my process healthy such that I ended up having one of those two things? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I find that so wonderful in the sense of empowerment. You know, that is giving so much power to obviously, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there's just, there needs to be this balance, but allowing families, allowing mothers to say, yes, this is my birth. And this, nobody will ever care about this moment more than I will. And so I need the weight and the responsibility of that. So allowing for that, but at the same time, allowing for course correction and okay, now with this new information, I'm going to make this decision. That's just such an open, comforting way to approach that. And, and you, and you see that when moms, um, like I do home birth transfers and there was in in that particular case of a home birth transfer, mom was never maybe even considering being in a house. But now that there needs to be a course correction, how do we now balance that out? That's guided discovery. It's like, okay, this is this is the way the baby's coming, I guess. So <laughs> let me let me go down this road and surrender to it with this course correction, but still having those balanced relationships and that shared decision making versus the provider who receives the transfer now saying, Hi, now that I got you, I'm gonna do things that I think are 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 are, are uh, necessary and appropriate without allowing you to share in that decision-making. So when it's course correction and transfers and this and that, and patients are breached all of a sudden, the ability to share in the information and to be responsible to it and to guide yourself differently makes it a healthy process and less obstetrical trauma. Exactly. And that's where I was thinking the same thing is I can't help but imagine that Mothers who are entering into these relationships, even when situations change, even when, you know, there's an unexpected transport to the hospital, an unexpected cesarean section, there's got to be so much less trauma, so much more comfort knowing, all right, well, I had a say in this and I felt respected and I felt involved in these decisions. Correct. 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 Exactly. Now, let me add one thing. <laughs> Please. There's, uh, actually, two things. One is um, I've described something, and it's in the book, and I've been saying it for years. I described something called a B score. And the B is bring birth back, or it can be Dr. B, whatever. But it's <laughs> nine questions that a mom or a family should be able to ask the provider to determine if this relationship is working regarding uh, or, or if there's going to be pitfalls in a relationship. And the nine questions, 10 points each, uh, the questions are very lowball questions, in fact. Um, I'll give you an example of what some of those are. Let me open my book, if you will. Uh, <laughs> and um, one of them is, does your provider take the time to actively listen to you? Does your provider believe you can go into spontaneous labor after your due date while monitoring your pregnancy safely and actively? Does your provider believe your pregnancy can be um, normalized despite any coexisting medical conditions that can be managed expectantly and safely? Another, another question is, does your provider 
discuss your concerns with you with respect and balance. And so there's nine questions like that. One of those questions is, does your provider support VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean, which is endorsed by the American College of OBGYN? They can support VBAC without doing VBAC. So if, mm. so, so, so if, the, so if the, in these nine questions, um, Ms. Fusco, if in these, if in these nine questions, the 10 points each, you should have, a, you should be at a 90% with that provider. If you're at 20%, you know, there's work to be done. One, the provider knows how much work they need to do to get on board with you. And you as the patient customer client know how much work you need to be on board with that provider. So if you're at 90%, you know that if things occur, you have a relationship that's balanced. You can discuss things. You can't figure out every single thing. But if you're at 20% at the beginning of that relationship, anything can happen. Someone's going to walk into a room and say, you know what? I think the flu is too low. You need to have a C-section now. You are going to be traumatized because your relationship has never been together to begin with. Now, imagine adding that to a large group of obstetricians. You got nine obstetricians. You haven't met. You met one for, for one visit. How are you going to have the balance in the relationship to do shared decision-making so when it comes game time, you're trusting each other? So it's, it's using that tool, that B-score, to say, where am I? How can you expect to have a healthy pregnancy journey if you're at a B-score of 20%? Or, right. if you, or if you know, better still, if you know you're at 20 or 30%, then if there is something that comes up that is off-putting, like, I didn't know you guys didn't do delayed cord pulsation. Oh, my God, I always wanted to do lotus birth. You knew that relationship was going to work anyway. So you won't be traumatized if you don't get your delayed cord pulsation. So the B-score allows you to understand where are you in that, in, in that arena because mothers want to, feel safe, right? They want to feel respected. But if your B score is at 20, 30%, guess what? <laughs> but if it's at 90%, anything could happen and you'll be fine. You'll be healthy. So I always find it interesting when moms are saying, well, I'm at 36 weeks. I didn't know they would do this. I didn't know the doctor would be on vacation. I didn't know you didn't believe in, in labor going more than 12 hours. <laughs> no, no, you knew that from the beginning if you did a B score. That is so a handy tool. It's, it's in the book. It's a communication tool. And here's the, here's, here's, here's the piece. And I'm sure we'll get to this in, in this conversation. How do you make the providers better? They need to understand what their score is in relationship to you. So if you're bringing out a birth plan as a mother, provider is off, is put off by the word birth plan, then the provider <laughs> knows what they need to do. They should be trying to fake the funk with you. They should be saying, man, I got to get myself together where I can start honoring birth plan versus viewing everyone who comes in with a birth plan as the enemy. And then let me try to marginalize her pregnancy and take her birth from her. Wow. Yeah, that is such a great point. And what an amazing tool. I am, I'm definitely excited to, uh, to really delve into that and look into it and be able to share that with, with all of these listeners. And so, okay, now as we talk about this and relate it to your practice, we kind of discussed your biography. So I know a little bit, but 
how did you come to these conclusions? You know, it seems so often that OBs get busy. I mean, man, these people are busy. They're surgeons, they're dealing with birth. There's so much to do. And it seems like there's kind of this conveyor belt of birth. So how did you step out of that? And I'm curious to hear what you think other OBs could do to to bring things back to perspective, if you will. Right. Bring birth back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you take the time to, to, to actively listen, then you understand that the, the mother, family, et cetera, are coming there for your, your expertise, genuinely. It's only when you don't take the time to actively listen, then it becomes, how do I orchestrate this? How do I now start putting these things in a box? 40 years old, maybe delivered by 39 weeks. Previous cesarean, nope, straight to C-section. Da-da-da-da-da. Well, we, you're interested in the probiotics? Mm, can't do that here. We're going to be everybody with antibiotics. So, but if you if you took the time as a provider, and I'm talking midwife and obstetrician, by the way. I've right, seen, right. I see it all over. If you took the time as a provider to just listen, you would understand that you can contribute to the relationship. So as busy as you are running up to the emergency room, doing this, doing this, oh, by the way, delivering a baby, as busy as you are, if you listen to the mother, it'll get you back back to center. It, 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 it will get you back into, why am I in this arena of obstetrics? Why don't I just do dermatology? <laughs> so if you start to listen, then your humanity will come out. You don't have to be someone who does a lot of breaches or does or does any breach. Just as a, for instance, if you, say you have no training in breach, your patients are coming to you trying to have a vaginal breach birth. You can't even imagine it happening. If enough of your patients came to you with those conversations and you would listen to them, you probably would take it upon yourself to learn how to do breach. You can do it on a model. You can go to a workshop. You can do it online. And then at some point, you will do the breach birth. But if you don't listen to that mother, shut it down. They're the enemy. Oh my gosh, she wants to do something natural. <sighs> then you are going to not evolve. You're in the wrong arena. And agree, you went to medical school, you got bills to pay, you probably got mortgage, kids in elementary school. You know, gotcha. But you're in the wrong arena. So no one's happy. That's a great so, point. But here's the but here's the solution, I think. <laughs> here's your solution. <laughs> Might be a little presumptuous, but anyway, this is what I've learned. I try to teach residents. I mentioned that earlier. I try mm-hmm. to teach uh, students. Wow, they're like fascinated over the fact that someone had a VBAC. I tried to teach, teach my OB colleagues. They're like, why would I want to do that? No one else is doing it. If the customer, that's the mother, came to that provider with the ability to maintain her voice, have a balanced conversation. If the customer repeatedly came into that hospital setting, into into the obstetrician's practice, into that midwifery practice, if the if the customer was coming to them repeatedly, asking not to be induced, having a balanced conversation, having shared decision making, that would make the providers bend to the customer's uh, will. And that's how things are changed in any movement, if you will. When the customers who are most affected 
can speak up, which means they have to maintain their voice. The imbalance of power is where a provider can say, you want what's best for your baby, don't you? It's a rhetorical question. The mother will say, of course, I will walk off a bridge if you say so. But if the mother can say, well, I do want what's best for my baby. I have tools, my toolkit. We need to communicate. Our B score is better. Why are we not making these choices? So the customer has to make the providers better. And like you said at the beginning of this little segment, they're busy. They're not trying to even listen to you. You're busy, 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 busy. The customer needs to slow them down. But it can't be one or two. It can't be Miss Fusco and a couple of your friends with midwives and patients. It has to be thousands of mothers saying, I want to have shared decision-making. I'm willing to share in their responsibility. It's going to be guided discovery. I didn't go to medical school. Grant you that. But we've got to change this relationship. The way it is now with the imbalance of power, if you will, a provider can make a mother do anything. But they don't, but they don't listen to the mother. The mother has to demand the provider listens, but she has to be comfortable maintaining her voice. But if she does share decision making, apply a B score, do something I call risk tolerance. I'll go to that in a minute. If she feels comfortable talking to a provider, she's going to make the provider better. And, but it can't be one or two every other day. It has to be every, almost, almost every patient coming into that door. They need to expect, oh my God, I, I got to respect her. I got to listen to her. I better start do, doing something rather than putting her in a box and doing a C-section. Right. So the mothers will make the providers better, but they need a communication tool. And that communication tool, whether you read this book or believe in what I do, is shared decision-making. Because mothers do that when they go to a restaurant, when they go to the department store, when they go to the, 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 the farmer's market, when they go to the school the kids are. They actually ask you questions. They don't, they're they not intimidated by the, the, the farmer or the bar or the hairstylist or the, or, or the, or the person who's selling them a car. It's only in maternity because that baby is in her tummy and she feels that need to protect that baby. The relationship is not balanced. Sheer decision making is to bring birth back into her hands so that relationship can be balanced and it'll make the providers better. But it has to be thousands of mothers clamoring for that. Oh, that is definitely, definitely the goal. Gosh, that would be amazing. And what you said earlier, and it, it's just so related, is, you know, you're bringing back, bringing birth back into the hands of mothers. You're also just bringing humanity back to the birthing process. Right, right, right. Oh. I mean, it just, it's as simple as that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. What's amazing is how, how, the, I'm sure not all the providers are doing this intentionally or consciously. Right. But some people must go home at night and say, what did I just do today? <laughs> and, but then they, then the next day they go back into the, you know, the hornet's nest and they behave the same way until the hornets in the nest, the lambs in the lion's den, these are the mothers begin to change the provider. Otherwise the provider, there's, there's no incentive to change. That's why there's nobody doing vaginal breaches. We can count our hands. How many people do those? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they, uh, two, three. <laughs> or they will be able to support home, home birth knowing that it's a safe choice, especially right. when you have a, a system in place in which you can do support for that. 
So thereby the home birth mother and midwife aren't pushing the envelope, if you will. They can mm-hmm. say, okay, now it's time to do something different. Now we do hospital. It, it could be beautiful, to be honest. Yes. But, 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 um, it takes, it takes, I think the customer, the mother, birth back into her hands, the power of that to change the providers. And it's not, and, and this is not about fighting to get your way to make sure you have or whatever. It's about that shared decision making, shared responsibility and guided discovery and thereby, wow. This is a beautiful thing. That's so great. And, you know, I, I remember earlier you were mentioning this concept of, you know, if you, if a provider focuses on, you know, like, oh, well, what, what's going on with this mother? You know, she can become the enemy. And I feel like sometimes it's the exact same way when it comes to the midwives and hospitals, you know, there's this enemy, uh, relationship and it just doesn't have to be that way if we can adopt this idea, this concept of shared decision-making. Right, right. So I talk about corporations and hospitals in, in, in the book because it has to be an ongoing expectation. It's almost like reform, if I can use that word in this conversation. Mm-hmm. It, it, it has to be where the midwives experience with the hospital is good because it's shared decision-making. Therefore, the hospital is the enemy because more collaborative relationships. Hospital and staff has to look at the midwife, home birth especially, and midwife in general as not the enemy. They want to defy everything. No, no, no. Sharing in that relationship makes it better, makes it healthier. So then, so then you can utilize the resources of the hospital versus saying, "We go into the hospital, it's out of my hands. Who knows what's going to happen?" Right. It doesn't have to be that. It doesn't. But but here's the deal. I'm sorry. No, no, go. I love it. Here's 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 the um the what I've come to to learn, and this is what has motivated me to put this on paper, is that and I'll quote Buckminster Fuller. He he said that if you want to teach people a new way of thinking, don't teach them, teach them new tools to use to think differently. Mm. And that is where we are in twenty twenty regarding maternity. Right. Yes, you're so right. Because these ideas, it's, it's not like they're new ideas. It's just, they've kind of been floating around, you know, in the ether here and there, but this idea of pulling it together, this is the list. This is what needs to happen. It just makes it so much more accessible and something that mothers and care providers of all types can use so much more effectively. Right. So I'm greatly appreciative. (laughs) Let, let, let me give you one more piece that I think is uh, is inherent in everyone, and that is their risk tolerance. Okay, great. And so risk tolerance, from my understanding, is based on five things. Uh, one is your existential beliefs. Two, your intuition. Three, your uh, friends and family, because they got opinions. Four is your experience. Where did you grow up? Who? Have you been pregnant before? Maybe you're from California versus New England, or maybe you're from Florida. So your experience. And the fifth is the facts. The facts are last. And so those four things that precede that, your intuition, your existential beliefs, your experience and friends and family, they're going to guide your appreciation of the facts. I've had mothers, first baby, 39 weeks, they want an elective 
family-centered cesarean. They don't want to think about labor or birth or anything that could potentially happen. So their risk tolerance is at a certain level. She is asking for a cesarean birth because of where she's at. You have someone else's risk tolerance where, hmm, post-dates, baby's in a breech presentation, there's some safe criteria for vaginal breech birth, let me keep, let me wait for spontaneous labor. My, my risk tolerance is at a certain level. She has a different risk tolerance. Both of them have made healthy choices. Mm-hmm. Mom who chose an elective cesarean versus someone who's waiting for spontaneous labor doing a, be- a breach and VBAC. They ha- they're making healthy choices for themselves. The risk tolerance piece of all of this allows mothers to hear the information, look at where they're from. There, there, there are some people who, who, who need to have a certain type of birth experience, but they're appealing to another type because they think that's a cool thing to do. You know, so their risk tolerance plays a, a big role in that shared decision-making paradigm. Not everybody has the same risk tolerance. Right. That is incredible and s- such a great way to explain it. You know, just the fact that you're not saying either one of those options are wrong. It's just based off of all of these criteria. And right. what is this mother feeling like? Right. I'll, I'll, let me tell you a short anecdote. And I apologize for the anecdote. Please. I love anecdotes. I, I, I had a mom about me a year ago. She had 10, she had six, five hospital births, I think, or four. Had six home births. I backed like four of them, I think. And then she was at baby number 13. She did not want a home birth. She couldn't imagine it. She, something in her intuition, her experience, her beliefs, she wanted to have a hospital birth. She already had like, and so, but mm-hmm. spoke to her. It was a balanced conversation. She just, I understand that Lucille, you can support everything. I need to have a hospital birth. I feel something is going to And she got an induction. This one has home birth. So she needed that. That was her risk tolerance for that particular pregnancy. Long story short, she had a beautiful um, vaginal birth in a hospital setting with our team. Her husband caught the baby. He never caught any of the other 12 babies. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> they all kissed the baby. Everybody. Not <laughs> <laughs> so 5% funny. of people. But my point being is that this was baby number 13 for this mom. Mm-hmm. And she said, I need to have a baby in the hospital. So her risk tolerance guided her. It wasn't me, the OB, saying, how dare you have six home births? Who do you think you are? Defying logic. Now you and see, you're scared now. You want to come to the hospital? Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> it wasn't that. Right. It wasn't that. It was her risk tolerance, shared decision-making, guided discovery. And, uh, and that's the story. Yeah. And it's so clear to me that, you know, forming relationships with your clients is just the most important thing. And I, I know that that has to begin in that prenatal, prenatal care. So what is that prenatal care like? And what do you encourage your clients to do when it comes to self-education? Uh, good question. Good question. I, I, I think from the phone call to the introduction with the, the administrative staff, the receptions, if you will, the, if there's mid-level providers in the office like MAs and, and nurses and the office manager 
everyone has to believe it. Mm. Because if no one in the office believes in VBAC, and you come in there talking about VBAC, you can almost feel it when you sign in. You want to try to have a vaginal birth? Huh, good luck. So when you enter into the arena, you can almost feel if there's a sense of if, if there's a sense of support. Your B score helps put it in black and white to say, oh my God, what am I doing here? <laughs> but you can Run. feel it. You can feel it. I mean, not everything's gonna work perfectly. You you might have a missed phone call or lab requisition didn't go down at the, the right time and all that stuff. But you can almost feel, is this the place for me? You're sitting in the waiting room, you're talking to a stranger or two, you're hearing their, you know. You, so you can almost feel it. So the prenatal care is the, the, the routine recommendations, in all fairness. We, we don't do anything special or not. What we don't do is spend a lot of time trying to convince you to do something a certain way. So, and I see it enough. Moms will come like, from Florida, for instance, they're trying to have a VBAC. <laughs> and we talk about VBAC one time, to be honest. And then they go, then, then they go to the regular prenatal visits. And they're like, wow, no one's trying to talk me out of a VBAC. No one's saying my blood pressure is high. No one is saying, you know, it's dangerous to have a VBAC, really. It's just we've, we've, we've discussed it. We've had this, you've had the consultation. And then we just keep it moving. We don't try to bring it up to you every single visit about VBAC. And then you're comfortable having one. So the prenatal care has to be one where moms feel they're being listened to, by the way. They feel comfortable in that environment. They know things could potentially change. They're with the team that can be flexible enough to change it. Um, and I've had moms come for VBAC, by the way, vaginal birth after cesarean for your audience who may not be familiar with the term, and who have chosen a family center cesarean at the end. Mm. Because, because what they were, what they may have been what they may have been traveling for was where they were. They weren't listening to them about the desire to have a VBAC right. or they couldn't support it. And mom's voice was being heard in our arena. And she realized it's not so much that she wanted a VBAC fighting against the system, the hospital, whoever, the OB. She wanted to be heard. And for her, a repeat cesarean was the appropriate choice to make. So she's, so she's driving like, five hours at VBAC and realize it wasn't the VBAC that they were taking that choice away from me. Right. And saying I had to have a scheduled C-section at 39 weeks or my uterus was going to explode. <laughs> right. Or I was a terrible mother. Yeah. Or, or I was a terrible mother for thinking that I would put my baby at risk for a VBAC that's supported by the American College of ob No, you want, you want a terrible mother. You were desiring something and you realize, okay, I can have it, but I really don't necessarily want it now anymore. I've guided my discovery to realize I needed a better process. Was it vaginal versus cesarean? It was the process. So if you're able to think, if, we, if people are able to actively listen to you, then our prenatal care environment is one where we do the routine stuff, really. Tummy checks, listening, laughing, giggling, talking about, oh, your blood pressure's up, we need to do bed rest, order 24-hour urines. But she's part of that conversation. So that is it's so incredible. And and what I'm thinking about all that we've discussed in this conversation, it really does come back to such basic 
things that we've just kind of forgotten about and that active mm-hmm. listening, you know, that active listening, being a team, really considering what one another are saying. And, and it goes both ways. It's the idea of, you know, listening to your care provider and trusting them, right. being able to have that trust, you know, so really bringing, as we said earlier, bringing that humanity piece back to it, bringing that listening, it shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't, it should not. And I'll tell you what's, what's interesting. If you have someone like yourself in an environment or, or say you, you go to a new place and you're bringing this philosophy that we're discussing to that new place, if that culture is not ready for it, you're going to get your head handed to you mm-hmm. because it'll filter out to the other moms. Like, wow, Ms. Fusco, is, is, is she listening? She's, 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 she's encouraging this dialogue. She's encouraging shared responsibility and guided discovery. But if, but if the culture around you is saying, we're going to make moms do what we want them to do because then you, Ms. Fusco, are going to be marginalized and have your head handed to you. Right. So if the other mothers in that culture realize that Ms. Fusco is Shared responsibility. She's having these respectful relationships. If the other mothers can talk and maintain their voices, then they'll change the providers around them and they'll change that culture. Hmm. So that's why I keep going back to the shared decision making as a philosophy and as, as a, as a, as a communication tool. Whether you read this book or not, how do you maintain your voice so the provider can listen to you? And then, and here's the thing, it doesn't have to be, I am going to have this no matter what, because I'm going to make you listen. No, that's not good either. <laughs> right. <laughs> no panties in a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's just interesting in that sense that it's like you're saying, it's so basic. It really is. But, it, but it's, such, it's so difficult in these times to where, and, and here's a piece. I'm, I, I'm starting to go off track. Mm-mm. This is why this is why you see I think these high friction points, and I and I should have mentioned this earlier. Before, mothers didn't have the the information; they didn't have the research. It wasn't in the palm of their hands in the form of a cell phone or a, a mobile device. Before, the obstetrician and the midwives had all the information, so of course it was time to induce. Of course you couldn't do this. Of course you had to do a GBS culture. Of course, of course, of course, because you trained for this. I believe you. I trust you. Now moms could say, well, let me just go to my web form, join the chat room, go to the store, Google it. And now I have a little information. Now can we talk about it? And so providers now know mothers have some a little bit of power in their hands. They right, can screw right. it up a little bit. But moms have a little power to at least get a conversation going. And so that's a friction point that provider has to be say, has to say, I love Google. I'm glad you looked it up. Now let's talk about my experience, my training, and what you looked up and see where we are. That's going to create a trusting relationship versus you shouldn't have Googled it. You shouldn't have gone to that web forum. I don't, we, we don't do that around here. No, that's not how you build a trusting relationship. Then yeah. how do you expect to stay together through birth, come out of there without being traumatized? I don't know. I can't imagine. And, Gosh, it's just, it's such a a beautiful idea of being able to take these concerns to your care provider. And really one of the things that I think about is, you know, mothers get kind of sometimes with both midwives and OBs, sometimes cowed into this idea of like, oh, well, this is, 
they're saying that I need to do this. This is obviously what my ba- what needs to happen for me to right, keep right. my baby safe. If we can, if we can bring that back to the prenatal care and think, well, really, the best way to keep my baby safe is by having a direct and open conversation with my care provider. You know, we can take care of this beforehand, right? And or as it occurs, guided discovery is trusting, and it is based on real stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got to make a decision to keep my baby safe this morning. Never anticipated it. It's right. okay because your relationship is trusting and it's been built before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God, there's no fluid? I got to have a C-section? Of course. Versus no fluid. I had a C-section. You look back. Oh, shit, I was bamboozled. Mm-hmm. That is what I'm, that's the piece that doesn't have to happen if there's a trusting relationship. Built on things before. You can't plan every single thing. And I say this a lot. You should a mother should not have to have a PhD in birth in order to figure out what's going on. You, you, <laughs> you actually shouldn't know nothing, but be able to have that relationship with your provider to learn and guide and discover and realize the best way to keep this baby safe because we have this trusting relationship. And I understand what you're saying to me. You understand what my preferences are. This is what we need to do. Okay, great, wonderful. Let's do it. General anesthesia, OR, let's go. Versus, I think what you got to do is your baby got to be safe and you're going to die. But, oh my God, what are you talking about? That's the piece that needs to be erased. That's a relationship that the mother is neat, that the mother has to make happen by having these core, her risk tolerance, the shared decision making. And this is not like you got to buy an app to make this happen. This is believing that you can do it. Mm-hmm. Your voice should be heard. Mm-hmm. I mean, hundred. Uh, just a side note: I think last week was the hundredth anniversary of women's suffrage. The right to vote was last week. Nancy Pelosi sent out a little tweet, and I read it, and I was like, hundred years. And in that, she said the mothers had to demand it. I mean, excuse me, the, the women had to demand the right to vote. The system knew it was the right thing to do, but until the mother started demanding it, the vote would never happen. This is the same thing with with shared decision-making and maternity care and then to be respected and and to be listened to. The mothers have to expect it. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Right. Why not just do it the easy way? Right. Wow. I am so overwhelmed at just how much this makes sense and how important it is for mothers to get this information. And like you said, it can't just be one every once in a while. It has to be all of the mothers demanding this care, no matter what type of care provider they're with. Correct. Correct. Because looking for you, Ms. Fusco, looking for a Boots Taylor, looking for a Stu Fishbine, looking for a Sean Walker, a Rick Safries. You shouldn't have to drive past a hospital or a midwifery service to get this, mm-hmm. but it's going to take the mothers expecting it so that everybody can have access to it. Mm. Well, Dr. Boots-Taylor, if people are looking for your book, where is the best place for them to find it? Uh, Amazon, actually. Oh, perfect. Yeah. You can get it in Kindle. You can get it in hard copy. Uh, audio is uh, on the way. Like. This week, that kind of thing. Oh, Amazon. And, Very good. And, 
And one thing for your, your listeners is that if you do take the time to, to read it in any format, um, if you find it of value, leave a review because it helps, it helps one, the, the book, if you will, but it helps mothers say, hmm, maybe this is a tool I could use. That's and thereby, whether they know about me, you, midwives, home birth, they don't have to know anything, but they know that they have a voice, then they're going to begin to use it. And when you start to use your voice, you become comfortable uh, asking questions. You, 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 you become comfortable. And, and, and here's the thing. And I know I've already said this in, in so many ways. You make the provider better. Right. You make the provider better. You know, they, they want to do good too. Right. They're people. <laughs> They're people. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, it's just, it's so amazing. I, I'm so excited about this and I just look forward to all of the moms going out and purchasing this book and maybe even gifting it to their yeah. care providers, you know? Well, there you go. There you go. It makes a, makes a great gift. Yeah. There you go. There you go. And Dr. Taylor, if anybody yeah. wants to follow along beyond the book, are you on social media? Are there places that they can learn more about you? Yeah, I mean, the practice's name is C-Baby. I, myself, I think I'm Dr. Boots Taylor at cbaby.org or something like that. But if you, but if Brad Boots Taylor, there's only about five of us on the planet. <laughs> my wife and my three children. <laughs> my wife's name, and you probably already know. But oh, I didn't know that. Long story short, um, when we got married, her name is Lisa. Lisa Boots, Brad Taylor. I said, I want your history. I'd rather than you relinquish yours, I'd rather have your history. So I took her name and wow. had to do a legal name change on that jazz. So here we are. If you Google Boots Taylor, you're going to see Lisa, but you'll see Brad Boots Taylor as well. And then you can go down that uh, that little rabbit hole and, and find websites and things like that. I am on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and those kind of things. Oh, very nice. Pretty, uh, pretty <laughs> That is, that is so neat. I know I had no idea about that. That just makes it all the better. You are such a cool guy. Gosh. Well, as we as we wrap this up, Doctor Bruce Taylor, do you have any questions? Anything you'd like to add? Yeah. Um, give me a, little, a brief bit on your history. We've met a couple times. Um, you kind of dash in with some people. <laughs> yeah, I. Like, I uh, yeah, <laughs> I actually, so I started as a student midwife uh, mm-hmm. with an incredible midwife in the Greenville area and mm-hmm. then became pregnant while I was apprenticing. I had my baby with this midwife and mm-hmm. oh, just, just a beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. She moved. I worked with another, a wonderful midwife in this area. Then mm-hmm. once, once my daughter hit toddlerhood, I realized midwifery was going to have to go on hiatus because yeah, I sure. needed all yeah. hands on deck with this toddler. <laughs> yeah, sure. Understood. And yeah, and then while I was at home, I just realized, you know, home birth, it's it's so niche. It's such a small community and there really mm-hmm. just aren't enough resources. So creating this podcast was kind of like an ode to Ina May. You know, she wow. has she has her guide to childbirth spiritual midwifery that's just jam-packed with these beautiful birth stories that just right. show right. other moms, hey, birth can be like this. It can be right. wonderful. Right. So right. that's what I've done with the podcast. I 
have recently launched a childbirth education program that's mm-hmm. for home birth moms. And uh, it really as it's been so wonderful. And, and in relation to it, I will tell you one of the big things that I stress in that course is how the mom, you're driving the bus, you know, this is your birth and you have to take responsibility. And so I love hearing that coming from other care providers as well, but that's how the podcast started back in, uh, gosh, it's been a year, over a year and a half now that it's been going on. And it has been such a wonderful journey getting to hear all of these beautiful stories getting to hear from amazing care providers, midwives, and the like. It's just such an empowering place. Wow, wonderful, wonderful. And, and what I'm hearing is just another another vehicle for moms to kind of hear, listen, take in, absorb, um, make part of their DNA, and, and help maintain their voices. Um, I'll say one thing to, to Holmberg, so for your listeners, as a perinatologist, a maternal fetal medicine specialist, it is a safe birth option. Mm-hmm. It is a wonderful choice. It is, it is, you're working with professionals. They happen to be midwives, by the way, professionals who care about the, the whole person, the mother, the baby, the birth, the experience, sharing in decision making. They do it kind of automatically, uh, sharing in that decision making. Um, so, um, uh, the medical establishment on our end has to do a better job of, 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 of uh, fortifying that relationship in a healthy way. Versus disparity. So home birth in and of itself is a, is a, is a healthy, safe choice, especially if there's a, um, uh, if there's available medical backup for anything that's unforeseen that you discover that you now need to do differently. So. Well, there you go. All of you listeners, you have heard it from Dr. Boots Taylor himself, a Green Beret, an OBGYN, so many, so many accolades there. Now you know home birth is safe and uh, you should consider it. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. All of you above. Uh, Dr. Booth Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the, the podcast. It was such an honor and a pleasure to speak with you today. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. I enjoyed this conversation and uh, I wish you well. <laughs> Good deal. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Are you looking to extend the home birth support, encouragement, and education? Join us in our Facebook group, Happy Home Birth Podcast Community, and check us out on Instagram at Happy Home Birth Podcast.